Now, more tips with your host, Rebecca Rogers. Remember that in our program, we present our opinion and the opinion of our guest, and is not to be interpreted as medical advice. Hello, and welcome to our program, Lifestyle Improvement. This is your host, Rebecca. Today we have with us Dr. Helen Odesky. Dr. Odesky is a licensed clinical psychologist practicing in the area of Chicago. She has training in cognitive behavioral therapy and exposure therapy. In the past decade, she has helped numerous individuals break the cycle of panic and anxiety and is the author of the book, Stop Anxiety from Stopping You, the breakthrough program for conquering panic and social anxiety. Hello, Dr. Odesky. Thank you so much for joining us today here at Lifestyle Improvement. We're very excited to hear what you have to tell us. So I'm sure you know there are many books on the subject of anxiety and panic disorder and those type of subjects out there. What made you decide to write a book on panic and anxiety? And why do you think your book is different than the rest of the books out there in the market? Yeah, um, good question. So I actually was working a lot with clients with panic and anxiety and they kept asking me for books and there's a lot of conflicting information out there as it turns out because what I would do is I would say well read this chapter but don't read the rest of it or you know I only want you to read a couple of pages here a couple of pages there and so I thought I'd come up with something that was a unified system that helped people work through because the other thing that people were doing is they were reading a lot about anxiety but they weren't really getting a lot of value out of it in terms of things they could take away and use in their daily lives and so I wanted to write something that would be current and also give people tools. So you were trying to write a book that was probably a little bit more practical and easy for just somebody that doesn't have a lot of information on the subject to just pick up and get some basic ideas. Yes. And, and more importantly, some basic tools of what to do. Fantastic. Anxiety and panic disorder. A lot of yes. people confuse those two things as being kind of the same thing. Could yeah. you please give us definitions or just a way for the listeners to know what is in general the difference between having an anxiety attack or having a panic, a panic attack versus simply being afraid or being scared of something? Yeah. So, so if you think about it in terms of weather phenomenon, you can think of anxiety as like a rainstorm or a snowstorm versus a panic attack is more like an avalanche or a flood. So the difference is really there's intense symptoms of physical arousal. So you're going to have rapid heartbeat. You're going to have breathing that's faster. You're going to feel nervous. But in a panic attack, it's much more intense. It feels like the world is ending. It feels like you're having a heart attack. It feels like you can't take the intensity of the sensations anymore. And it's usually brief and it peaks. And it may last, you know, people will say, may last from a few minutes to a few hours. Generally, our body is only sustained for about 10 minutes at full speed. So uh, it's, it's very much a peak sensation versus anxiety can, can go on for days or years and it can be mild or moderate or intense. So what is the difference uh, between having anxiety? And, and I'm thinking about caregivers, a mm -hmm. population that has to deal with a lot of situations that can be very stress inducing. Yes. And there's a lot of situations that can be quite frightening. 
So mm-hmm. what would you say the difference is between when you're feeling afraid because something can happen to somebody you're caring for versus yeah. if you're reacting with an anxiety attack? Yeah. So fear is a useful emotion. Fear is current. You're responding to a situation that's happening in the moment. There's water spilled on the floor. Somebody's walking. You're afraid they're going to slip. You do something about it. It prompts you to action. Versus anxiety is usually very hypothetical and future-oriented. So what if next week or next month when I'm on vacation, I get that dreaded phone call that something bad has happened? So you work with caregivers as well. Do you find that for caregivers is a little bit difficult to be able to come to that place where, yes, they're acknowledging that they're afraid of something happening, but not to make it to the point where they continue to be anxious about it. Yes. So, And, and I think that the key is to focus on the things that are actionable and that you can control. Anxiety lives in the space that's not actionable and in spaces we cannot control. In your book, you share about a system that you call the unlock system. Yes. It's these letters, U-N-L-O-C-K, yes. which you spell out. Could you explain to our listeners a little bit more about the this system and why did you decide that this was something that was necessary? Yes. So um, the UNLOCK is an acronym just to make it easy to remember. And it stands for the specific steps that I feel like everybody needs to get through in order to really manage and, and master anxiety. So I really uh, emphasize this difference between coping versus mastery. Coping is something we do in an emergency mode, but coping your entire life doesn't make for a very rich or fulfilling life. And so in order to master anxiety, I really feel like you need to go through these six steps and and I'll go through them for you. So U and unlock stands for understanding. I think it's important to really understand anxiety. Anxiety lies, but the lies are very predictable. So we can learn to understand what the lies are and then we could learn to tune them out right? or look at them as unimportant or unnecessary information. First, we need to understand what anxiety is about. Anxiety is about listening to things we can't control, living in the hypothetical, really not not living in, in the moment, but living in some future scary scenario. The next thing we need to do is to negate the lies. Uh, usually the lies have to do with something non-actionable or hypothetical. So we need to negate the importance of it at the outset. So I really stress this idea that we don't need to argue back and forth in our brain. That's draining. And a lot of us already do that and it doesn't work. And so you just need to negate it. Like, no, that's not the reality. I'm going to focus on something that I'd like to or need to do instead. And eventually that chatter of anxiety, that chatter of panic is going to subside. The next thing we need to do is we need to leverage our fear. So if we just live in the hypothetical and we're afraid, a lot of times what happens with that is avoidance, which means we start backing away from needing or wanting to do things that are a little bit scary or challenging. If we're afraid of being rejected, then we won't put ourselves in social situations where that's a good possibility. So we need to really leverage our fears so that we can overcome the anxiety. So that's the L. O is being open to a different outcome. So a lot of times when people come to me and they've had anxiety for years, what happens is they go, yes, I realize I've got to do this, but I already have experience doing this and it goes badly. So why should I try it again? 
And that's a very valid question, right? If you've had bad experiences, then you track the pattern and you go, well, it really doesn't take a lot to put two and two together. They're doing the same thing. I won't get a different result. However, once we change how we think, often the results can be very different. So a similar situation, if experienced differently, is going to be a different situation. Now, we're never going to put ourselves into that situation unless we change the expectancy. So we have to start looking at... and. A lot of people don't want to expect a positive result, nor is it necessary, right? We don't know that it's going to go well, but also I think predicting that it's going to go badly is always going to shoot us in the foot. So I look at it like, okay, let's predict that we don't know how it's going to go, but it might go differently than it did last time. And so that's the O. The C stands for compassion. So a lot of times people get stuck in what feels like an endless cycle of anxiety. And what happens with that is depression kind of goes along with that. So we start feeling badly about ourselves and then we start talking badly to ourselves about ourselves. So we criticize ourselves. We start getting in a rut with how we look at ourselves. Maybe we see ourselves as weak or unable to do things. And so that becomes a defining story really. And so I think the languaging around how we talk to ourselves makes a huge difference in how we master anxiety and whether we master anxiety. So it really has to do with learning to talk to yourself in a compassionate rather than a critical manner. So, and then the K stands for kindling. So we want to kindle small changes to make a big difference. And so it's really starting small. So if you haven't, um, been socializing very much because you've had social anxiety, then you don't have to go to a huge party. Just get out of the house, go sit in a coffee shop and, but make, make those changes, make the really small changes that feel like you could do them until you can get to bigger things because they will feel manageable once you get started. So that's the system, really. I think you have to go through all of these steps. So in other words, you start by challenging or questioning what your brain is telling you. Mm-hmm. And you begin to tell it <laughs> a different message, correct? Yes. Fantastic. And to dismiss the messages that, because we don't need to argue with all the messages, we can just look at the messages that are important or that are fitting in with our agenda of mastering anxiety, mastering panic. Not all of them are important. I tell my clients this all the time. You can choose what you focus on. And I think the subject of self-talk is really powerful. Mm -hmm. Because the self-talk can be so instrumental all through the day, even if you're not speaking out loud. Yes. <laughs> you know, in our head. Telling yourself with us. <laughs> constantly, while you're telling yourself, even going through situations that are emergency situations, how you talk to yourself at those times, especially with, um, I think, caregivers who are constantly dealing with situations that could be life-threatening. Mm -hmm. That self-talk really is essential because when they are faced with those difficult moments, they yeah. have to really know what to tell themselves so that they mm -hmm. can come back to a centered place and then respond appropriately. Correct? This is your host, Rebecca, and now we will take a short break and we will be right back with more ideas on lifestyle improvement.
What if there was a way to help your struggling child perform better academically? Would you pick up the phone and call? Lysol Improvement Occupational Therapy Services in Puyallup, Washington, supports wellness and optimal educational performance. Instead of just reteaching information, we endeavor to identify the possible root causes for your child's learning difficulties. We offer targeted testing to assist in the creation of an individualized plan and provide you with the brain training tools that can help improve academic performance. Visit our website at www.lifestyle.com improvement.com or give us a call today at 877-957-7387 extension 101 that again is 877-957-7387 extension 101 for an initial free phone consultation lifestyle improvement occupational therapy we're ready to partner with parents and to help your child succeed I think caregivers who are constantly dealing with situations that could be life-threatening, mm -hmm. that self-talk really is essential because when they are faced with those difficult moments, they yeah. have to really know what to tell themselves so that they mm -hmm. can come back to a centered place and then respond appropriately, correct? Yep. So it's really about getting grounded. Talk to us about that a little bit more. Yeah, I think in crisis situations, people do very well. It's as the crisis is unfolding or after the crisis that most people need help. So most people who are caregivers, are, I think, are really good at, give, at dealing with crisis situations. It's the in-between moments. Like if a crisis actually happens, you know to call 911, you know what to do. But it's, it's the moments leading up to, is this going to be a crisis? How is this going to unfold? Or the aftermath, is it going to happen again that I think people need help dealing with? Right. So part of it is looking at your own ability and acknowledging your own strength in handling crises. Like, I've got this. I'm and trusting yourself. Like, I'm going to know what to do. I think that's very true. And I think the expectation piece is really huge. Some of the parents that I have talked to have children that have conditions in which they're life threatening. And truly, mm -hmm. that is extremely scary. So going mm -hmm. from that fear piece and being able to manage that fear in such a way so it won't become a constant anxiety concern is yes. really the challenge. Yeah, and it really makes a difference as far as the child because if the parent is scared, the child is going to become scared by default. So it's up to the parent to really say, like, okay, I've got to keep like a, a level front here so that, that we're both are okay. And, and then if, if, the, if an emergency arises, we'll deal with it. But until it does, we've got to act like this is our normal. That is a very powerful coping mechanism, I think, for situations like that. Because if the parent is able to maintain that more relaxed way of dealing with the issue, in general, yeah. it brings the whole situation down energy-wise. And so mm -hmm. it just brings the whole stress environment to a different level. And it's similar for, for uh, if you're a caregiver for an elderly person, because it's very much the same thing. If they're relying on you and you feel grounded, then things seem to go smoother. Correct. Yes, it is. For <laughs> yeah. sure. For mm. sure. Because they know, like, you've got this. Yes. You've got this. I've got somebody there to rely on. You're so right. um, I think that's huge. Yeah. <laughs> you better get this. <laughs> yes, yeah. I'm counting on you. So what are some of the immediate recommendations you could share with caregivers or our listeners 
to help them cope with stress more effectively. You did mention your system, but I wonder if you have some more specific things. Oh, absolutely. So part of being a caregiver is it, it takes a lot of energy. It's time consuming, but it's also consuming on an emotional level. And so really have to look at, okay, how are you taking care of yourself? So do you, do you have support? Do you have downtime? How do you create that? How do you de-stress? How do you meet your own needs for physical, emotional, spiritual renewal? Where are your supports? Where do you go to in times of difficulty, right? So it's, it's setting up your own system for yourself, which is the opposite of what people usually think of. People usually think like, I'm okay, I'm the caregiver. I, I, I'm going to take care of this person and they become really good and, and get mastery in taking care of someone else. And a lot of times that's rewarding on its own level. And so people start drifting away from hey, there's this, this other need I have to take care of just me. <laughs> so starting by taking care of yourself. Yes. And being compassionate towards yourself. Yes, and allowing yourself, because a lot of people will say to me, but I feel guilty, I'm okay, so why should I take that half hour to go for a run? Or why should I go and do something that's just for fun, right? Whereas the reality is well, we all need some of that. So if you don't do that, what's the alternative? Usually the alternative is caregiver burnout. Definitely. In order to first address any issues of anxiety or panic disorder or panic attacks is start by becoming aware of what your own needs are and trying to find ways to meet those needs because right there is where you're going to begin the process of helping yourself cope with stress in a more effective way, correct? Exactly. Perfect. That was very well put. How do you think is the best way, because you did explain a little bit at the beginning the difference between anxiety and a panic attack. Thank mm -hmm. you. Because like I said, a lot of people confuse those two and they really don't have specific differentiation between them. How do you recommend that somebody handles a panic attack, if they're really starting to be aware based on what you defined, that this is not just anxiety, this is, you know, there's huge meltdowns going on here. Mm -hmm. How do you yeah. recommend that that person deals with that or what should they do? Well, uh, the very first thing is panic attacks feel very physical. So a lot of people will go to the doctor and get a physical, which I think is a fair thing. You know, if you're having uh, a very first panic attack, that's fair. So once you get the physical causes ruled out, let's assume that you did and you realize it's panic attack, it's really important to address what's going on, which is sensations. You're having your body is giving you a signal. You're having strong sensations. So something is going on. And so one of the things you could do is look at what's triggering it. So are there situations that are triggering it, in which case you need to deal with the situations? So are you stressed about a particular life event that's going on or a life transition or an interpersonal situation that's going on? You know, are you always having it around the same issue or are they random? So if it has to do with a situation, of course, addressing the situation is going to ease you and ease the panic attack. A lot of the times they are random. So people say, well, I wake up in the middle of the night or it just doesn't have any rhyme or reason. So then we look at lifestyle. So, um, and I really believe in the 360 degree approach. So we've got to look at other factors. So how's your sleep? How's your diet? Are you going the whole day without eating? Are you consuming large amounts of alcohol or caffeine? Um, what happens if that changes, right? Um, looking at what else might be going on with you. 
is really helpful. Now, the third factor is what do you actually do when you have a panic attack? So that's really key. A lot of people, what they do is they try to counteract it by trying to breathe very deeply. And then what that's going to do, unfortunately, is that's going to make it worse. So usually if you try to breathe deeply during a panic attack, you're going to end up hyperventilating or at the, your best case scenarios, it won't do anything for you, so it won't ease the panic attack. So the best thing to do during a panic attack is actually to close your mouth and breathe through your nose. The next best thing to do after you've done that is to try and refocus on what you're doing. So panic will usually give you energy. So looking at not just internally but externally and looking at, okay, I've got energy, what do I want to do? Uh, a lot of times we need to do certain things like we're at work or we have housework, we have other tasks that need to be done. Getting those tasks done with the panic attack will eventually lead to those symptoms subsiding. Your body cannot hold on to those symptoms, but there's a way to feed them with our thoughts and with our physical actions. So if we try to breathe rapidly or deeply, we can make it worse. But if we close our mouth and we just we return away from monitoring our breathing, which is an automatic function. We don't really need to focus on how to breathe. If that's a trick that panic feeds us. It says now, all of a sudden, you haven't been afraid your whole life of breathing, but now you have to focus 100% of your attention just in case, or you're going to feel worse. Now, that's a lie, right? Otherwise, if we believe that, we wouldn't do anything. We wouldn't go to sleep. We would never stop. We'd just focus on our breathing. But really, it's an automatic function. So we don't need to do anything with it other than close our mouth so we don't make it worse. Now, you see, that's very interesting. You hear a lot of the work out there on mindfulness and a lot of meditation. And one of the things mm -hmm. that I, of course, talk about in order to become more centered and less afraid, less anxious, is to do the the slow breathing, concentration on the breathing, focusing on the breathing. But what you're saying is that may apply for other things, but for panic, that's probably not the way to go. Exactly. If you want to do relaxation, that's totally fine. Anybody that's had a panic attack will tell you that breathing during a panic attack and doing your mindfulness is not going to help you one bit. <laughs> now, that's a great relaxation strategy. It's a great management, a stress management strategy that you could use at other times. And I think it does make a difference. That's a great but, clarification. Yeah, just not during a panic attack. That's a great clarification to have and, and to know, because again, that is very much the breathing is a very much a generalized thing that is given out as a way to deal with most stressful situations, the deep breath. Yeah, yeah, how many times do we hear that? Just breathe through it. <laughs> correct, correct. So not focusing on the breath, just moving yep. on into... Yeah, um, ground yourself in knowing that these are... Anybody that's had a first panic attack, that's pretty much your worst one. So once you've had a few, you know exactly what they are. So ground yourself in the knowing that you know exactly what's going on. They are sensation, not danger. So you're safe. And that you can continue to do whatever you need to do with those sensations. Do you find that they are very sensory based? Uh, I find that the that people really get scared of the sensations. So a lot of the symptoms of panic attacks are physical symptoms. The shortness of breath, the chest pressure, the um, rapid heartbeat, they can, um, the heat that people can feel sometimes in their face or neck or chest. Uh, some people experience numbness in their fingers and toes and even in the face sometimes. And, and I think those can be a little bit scary for people. Um, I think 
once you know what those are and you're able to label them as sensations, you're able to move through them. Well, and, and you can you could relegate those to non-dangerous. Well, thank you for clarifying those symptoms because, again, as people may not know the difference between anxiety, being afraid, or panic attacks, to mm-hmm. hear the specific symptoms that one would be feeling is helpful. So people can make a difference that if they're if the symptoms are that severe, then probably they may be having a panic attack instead of an anxiety mm-hmm. attack. Is there a connection between anxiety and depression that you have seen with your patients or that you think you've seen with caregivers? Oh, absolutely. So uh, very often they are what's called comorbid, meaning they occur together. Uh, we don't always see the chicken and the egg connection. So sometimes if you've had anxiety for a long time, it starts interfering with your life, you start getting depressed. Right? If you're having a panic attack while driving and then you stop driving to counteract that, then you're seeing your friends less often. Our friends are our buffers socially, so then it affects your mood and you become depressed and isolated. Um, other times people become depressed, um, they might isolate and then they get anxiety right? because they're spending a lot of time alone. <laughs> So um, part of what happens with caregivers is they spend a lot of time maybe with one person, one person who isn't um, offering them a whole lot in return. So it becomes a very one-sided relationship and then they don't get their other needs met. So they can become depressed and anxious just from not having other buffer zones in their life. Is there any connection between anger and anxiety that you have seen? Sometimes there's a... There is a connection. A lot of times there's connection, actually the opposite of what people think. So it's not that anger causes anxiety. It's a, sometimes people uh, don't express things they need to express. And so it's this unexpressed anger that might cause feelings of anxiety or depression, depending on the person. So it's really, it's avoiding dealing maybe with something that's a, a topic that is very stressful. Remember that in our program, we present our opinion and the opinion of our guest and is not to be interpreted as medical advice. Thank you for joining us today on Lifestyle Improvement for part one of our interview with Dr. Helen Odesky. Dr. Odesky is a licensed clinical psychologist practicing in the area of Chicago. She has training in cognitive behavioral therapy and exposure therapy. In the past decade, she has helped numerous individuals break the cycle of panic and anxiety and is the author of the book, Stop Anxiety From Stopping You, the breakthrough program for conquering panic and social anxiety. Please join your host, Rebecca Rogers, again next week for part two of our interview with Dr. Helen Odesky.